congregation of our great God and Savior, in the Bible, there is no figure that's more greater or grander than a king. Uh, a king in the Bible, and, and maybe still today, is very, they're very impressive in appearance, and they're honored and respected very highly. They're viewed as protectors and providers for their people. They are dispensers of mercy and justice. They are symbols of power and authority, grandeur and excellence. And we begin this way because it's good to keep that image in our minds as we consider the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we want to see and be reminded this morning from this passage and from many other passages in the Bible that the kingship of Jesus is something to be celebrated because his kingship, unlike that of all other kingships, all kings who have gone before him, certainly any who will come after him, his kingship is greater because he's a blessing to his subjects. And not only subjects of one nation, but all the nations of the world, all whom he calls to himself. And under his kingship, many find safe refuge. And he's a, he's a kingship that will never be defeated, never be destroyed in comparison with other kingdoms and kingships. Now, this kingship of Jesus, of course, was spoken to David many centuries before the actual coming of Christ into the world. And it was spoken by the prophet Nathan. And David's desire, the, uh, just to set the context here, David's desire was to build a house for the Ark of the Covenant, which was a symbol of the presence of God with his people. But the Lord uses that inclination to reveal something to David, something even more wonderful than the building of a house or even a temple. A son coming from David's bloodline would in fact build a house to God. But it was to be a grander, bigger, more expansive house that David could even begin to imagine. And in this promise given to David, we have a prophecy of the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because as it is very easy to see, the accomplishments of God's king far exceeds the capabilities or the accomplishments of any earthly king. And so our theme this morning as we look at 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 to 16, is this. The Lord prophesies of the king of kings in his promise to David. The Lord prophesies of the king of kings in his promise to David. We'll see two points this morning. In the first place, we'll look at the promise, the, what this all entails. And in the second place, we'll look at the fulfillment of that promise, how it's uh, established by the Lord Jesus Christ. But as the Lord prophesies of the king of kings in his promise, promise to David, we see in the first place, we're looking at the promise itself. Now, Again, to set the context, the Lord had given David rest at this time in his life from all his enemies. And David, in contrast to past times when he was fleeing Saul, or he was maybe expecting or looking forward to the day when he would be king of Israel, he was now finally and fully established as the king of Israel. And something that really speaks to that is the fact that he had even made himself. He had built himself a nice house, and it's mentioned here that it was built out of cedar. And that's important because the, uh, cedar was the, was the material used by what we would call today the rich and the famous, the well-to-do of that time. 
Cedar was an expensive, uh, very fragrant, very durable uh, material that was actually imported from Lebanon. And we actually, when we get to the, the building of the temple, we'll see cedar being used extensively in the, um, in the temple of God. And, uh, and so cedar was the, the prized possession, the prized building material uh, that, of, the, of the rich and famous of that day. And so David had built himself this house. And at some point, to his credit, he looks around him at this wonderful house that he had built himself. And he sees himself living in this expensive, well-built, opulent house. And then he thinks about the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the presence of God, that it stayed in a tent. And, and David, in thinking of this, it, it just didn't seem right with him. It didn't sit well with him. It bothered him, in a sense we might say it this way, it bothered David that he, he felt as if he was living better than God. And so he had this wonderful thought. Very commendable, actually. He wanted to build a house that was worthy of the God of Israel. Because David knew, I mean, he, he wrote Psalms about it. He knew that the God of Israel, the true and living God, is almighty, he's glorious in splendor and majesty. His name, as he penned in Psalm 8, is excellent, majestic in all the earth. He is the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord of hosts. And so in David's mind, how could the ark, which is the symbol of God's presence, be housed in a tent while I'm living in this gorgeous house built of cedar? It's just ridiculous in his mind. And he decided in his heart that he would build a house worthy of God. But that very night, the Lord gave word to the prophet Nathan for David. And he tells David that he was not the one who was going to build a house for God. In fact, God himself would build his own house. We might say that in a sense, God puts David in his place here, but not, not in a nasty way, not in a scolding kind of a way. He reminds David here. He begins to rehearse some facts with David. He reminds David that he had never commanded any leader of Israel, from Moses onward, to build a house for him. And he proceeds to give David a, a brief history lesson. Since the time he had brought his people out of Egypt, he says in verse 6, I have moved about in a tent or a tabernacle. In other words, he had traveled with them wherever they had gone. He had not let himself be confined to one place. In a sense, it was not like, as if God had said, okay, build me a temple, leave the Ark of the Covenant here, and every time the, Israel, the Israelites wanted to be close to their God, they had to make a journey all this way to worship God. He had always been with them and among them. It's a beautiful thought and a beautiful image if you think about it. He was always near to them in their struggles. And then God further reminds David of his abilities, his power. He reminds David that he, in fact, had, we might say it this way, built David into a king. Because, of course, David was not born into royalty. He had been a mere shepherd boy. And the Lord had taken him from following the sheep and he had brought him and made him king over his people Israel. And the Lord reminds David that all the success that he had had 
And the great name that he had achieved was because the Lord had been with him wherever he had gone. And so the Lord reminds David here, as we said, not in a nasty way, but in a nice way. The Lord reminds David here, I am the kingmaker and I am the master builder. And then he reminds him of a further thing, that the time had not come yet for building such a house. The, why? Because the work was not done yet. Israel at this time, our passage indicates, they still had many enemies who in fact disputed their right to possess Canaan. And until that time, when those enemies, whom God counted as his own enemies, until the time when those enemies were subdued and conquered and silenced, God didn't see it as a time for him to have a house. The luxury of a house for God was not an option until that happened. The work had to continue. In time, he would establish Israel as a nation to be feared. There would be a time to come when no oppressors would even dare to oppose them. That would be the time for house building. And by the way, it was not David who would do the building. In verse 11 and uh, 11b, David hears, Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Now boys and girls, if we're thinking... When we're listening, we think, well, why would the Lord build David a house? We just talked about that. David had a house, a beautiful house, made of cedar. Why would God say to David, I'm going to build you a house when he already had one? Well, here's the thing. In the Bible, the word house can be understood in, in various ways. It can mean a literal house, which is built out of wood or brick or whatever, but the word house in the Bible could also mean a family. It could mean a community. It could mean a gene genealogical bloodline. Think, for instance, of how Israel, uh, uh, they're, they're addressed sometimes, or they're called the house of Israel, right? Uh, not one particular house. We're talking about the people of Israel. And so David has promised a house in this sense, not a house made out of brick and wood, but uh, we might say a dynasty, an empire. That's the house that God would build him. And he's promised this in verses 12 to 13. Let's recall this again. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Listen to the picturesque language there. God says to him, when you lie down, I will raise up from your own body one who will build a house for my name. When David breathed his last, when God called him out of this life, and at God's appointed time, and not a minute before then, God would then cause a seed to rise before him, his own offspring, who would build that house for him. Now, in the immediate context, we know, boys and girls, that David's son, who inherited the kingdom after him, was Solomon, right? And um, we even read in 1 Kings of the magnificent temple that was built by, uh, by Solomon. It was said of that temple that it was unmatched in splendor and beauty. 
and richness. But even as we say that, we have to quickly say that it's very easy to see that this prophecy could not have been confined to King Solomon or any earthly king. Because the promise, and we'll get to this more in our second point, the promise speaks of the throne or kingdom of David's son being established, what? Forever. His house, that is his dynasty, the Davidic kingship, would continue on through every generation. It would never cease. Now, I'll ask you to just hold on to that thought for now until we get to our second point. The, the, what we need to see for now, and David needs to see this, is that if any house was going to be built, if any kingdom was going to be established, it was the Lord who was going to do it. And he was going to do it at the right time. And congregation, it has always been that way. It always will be that way. God is always the master builder. He is the one who has always been busy building his kingdom and will continue to do so until the second coming of Christ. If you think about it, we can even go back to the time of Abraham. Genesis 17, verse 6. God comes to Abraham and he promises that kings would come from him. These are, this is many, many years, centuries before David. Or in Genesis 49, the Lord speaks through Jacob and he announces that the scepter will not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And where was David from? Bethlehem in Judah. And so, as shocking as all of this might have been to David, really, in a way, it, it, we might say it, it ought not to have been. And yet, we can only imagine the wonder and delight that David felt at this news. If we had read further in verse 18, we would have read of David's prayer where he says, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? We can all say that, can't we? this morning, and every day of our Christian lives. All of us with David ought to be expressing amazement at God's grace toward us, way beyond what we could ever ask or expect. Why? Because God establishes his kingdom as the master builder, the kingdom maker. And further, David hears this promise that God would regard a son coming from his own body, a seed, an offspring. And God would regard that son as his own, verse 14. And he would be a father to him. And as a father disciplines the son he loves, so God would discipline David's son with the rod of men and the blows of men. Now again, boys and girls, we know in the immediate context, we know that Solomon experienced some of this through a man named Hadad, the Edomite, and Razan, the, Eli, uh, Razan, the son of Eliada, and Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And indeed, when we read through the book of Kings and Chronicles, we see that all the kings in David's line were either at times participating in war or conscious of the possibility of war. Here's the difference. God promises David in verse 15, 
that in spite of all of these things happening, he would never take away his steadfast love, his faithfulness from David's son. He even draws a comparison between David and Saul. Saul had sinned and had all of God's mercy and favor removed from him. That's not what was going to happen with David. His house and his kingdom and his throne will be established forever. But as the Lord prophesies of the king of kings in his promise to David, we also see in the second place the fulfillment. We're looking now at how Christ fulfills this prophecy. Because obviously this prophecy, as we said, could not be confined to Solomon, son of David. And certainly, as we said, Solomon built the temple, which was indeed a house for God's name. And certainly Solomon was very great, exceeding the power and majesty and greatness and wealth of all the kings before him and and during his time. And certainly Israel, under Solomon, enjoyed peace and prosperity under Solomon, like no other king before him or since. And suddenly Solomon was loved by God as a son. And there came a time in his life when he was even disciplined by God. But here's the thing. We cannot escape the designation of David's kingdom and throne as being established forever. We can only stay with Solomon or one of the, king, or one of the sons of David if we ignore these words. Established forever. Psalm 89 verse 29 helps us a little bit with this as it restates God's promise to David this way, even expanding our understanding of that promise. In Psalm 89, verse 29, we read, His seed I will make to endure forever, and His throne as the days of heaven. His throne as the days of heaven. And so it's very easy to see that this could not be referring to any ordinary descendant of David, because no human being exists as long as the heavens Why? Because men die. We have a lifespan. We have an expiry date. We have a time that we live on this earth and then we die. And their kingdoms, as great and wonderful as they may be, may just be replaced by another kingdom. And so the seed of David, who would endure forever, must be someone who has eternal existence, which of course would disqualify Solomon, David's son, and every son born of the lineage of David throughout history, because for the simple reason is they all died. Their kingship was limited. Death brought an end to their rule. And so this prophecy must speak of another king, capital A, capital K, one who would indeed build a house for God's name and whose kingdom and throne would be established forever. And that son, of course, was none other than Jesus Christ. Listen, for instance, to the announcement of the angel to Mary. And this is in Luke 2, or Luke 1, verses 31 to 33. It's the announcement of the angel to Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him 
the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so the New Testament leaves no doubt that this Old Testament promise or prophecy was speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's many, many other places we can go. Think as well of the very first verse in the Gospel of Matthew. It describes the list following as the, geneal- as the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's how it says it. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And Luke, in his Gospel, places Joseph, who is the earthly, though not biological father of Jesus, in the line of David. He was from the lineage or bloodline of David. Apparently the promise given to David was well known. It was well preached. It was well talked about. It was known from the highest to the lowest. And so you find two blind men crying out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, what we call his triumphant entry, he is hailed as the king of Israel who comes in the name of the Lord. And Matthew records that the multitudes cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. And when Jesus heals a person who was demon-possessed and blind and mute, we read that the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Well, think of the question of the Magi when they came to Jerusalem. They said, this is the question they asked, where is the one born king of the Jews? Or think of the words of the foreigner, the woman from Canaan, who cried out to Jesus concerning her demon-possessed daughter, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. And so this was well known by by people of Israel, from the highest to the lowest, and even foreigners. Later on, after the ascension of Jesus, we hear Paul preach in the synagogue in Antioch, and this is in Acts 13, that Jesus was, this is how the apostles proclaimed Jesus, okay, when they began to preach Jesus to the world, Paul proclaimed that Jesus was from David's seed, according to God's promise to raise up a Savior for Israel. And in his letter to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 3, he refers to Jesus as our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, he tells Timothy to remember that Jesus Christ, the son of David, was raised from the dead. And so the original promise to David was well known, passed down from generation to generation, even spreading to those outside of Israel. Israel, over time, had developed a unique expectations of the appearance of a special king who was a descendant of David. And they would sing about him in their worship. And they had the prophets who reminded them. Think of Isaiah 9, verse 7. Of the child to be born, the son to be given, who would sit upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. They had heard Isaiah speak to them or read to them. Isaiah 11, verse 1, prophesying of a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch out of his roots. They had heard the words of the prophets over and over again of the one to come who would be the king of Israel, who would occupy the throne of their father David. And so they knew. In fact, 
They lived in the expectation of a radiant, glorious, powerful king who would be a descendant of David. And this, even the title son of David had de- developed in their minds uh, an incredible and tremendous significance. And, and when they saw Jesus and they heard the things he said and they saw the miracles that he performed, they began to think or they begin to imagine, they begin to believe that maybe, maybe just maybe, he is the one that the prophets and the Old Testament promises spoke about. But boys and girls, sadly, we know how that all turned out, how it all worked out. That the time would come when the people of Israel would not praise Jesus for his kingship but they would begin to even mock his kingship. Why did that happen? Because Israel misunderstood the kingship of Jesus. See, they were looking for someone who would come to lead them against their enemies and restore Israel to be the nation that they were under David and under Solomon. What they failed to realize and what they failed to understand about the the king that God was sending into the world the King of kings and the Lord of lords, was that he would bring them peace and restoration, not by sword or spear, but by bearing their sins, our sins, upon himself on the cross. And so, and we have to say that in the providence of God, but because of this misunderstanding, the Jews rejected Jesus. Not that that made him any less king, Because, of course, he fulfilled all that was prophesied of him. He was indeed accounted to be the son of Joseph, a descendant of David. And God the Father certainly established his throne and his kingdom. And in Matthew 28, we read that all authority over heaven and earth has been given to him. In Philippians 2 verse 9, we read that God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every other name. And so in spite of Israel's rejection, it does not mean that Christ Jesus failed. In Colossians 2.15, we read that Jesus has disarmed principalities and powers and and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in his death on the cross. And so the New Testament leaves no doubt that Jesus is God's promised king. But we have to ask, how has he fulfilled the part about building a house for God's name? Well, I ask you to remember our explanation of the word house before. We said that a house could be a literal house or it could be a people. And that is how the New Testament describes the work of Jesus as establishing a house for God. Not a literal house made of bricks and cedar, but a church, a people, a spiritual house. Jesus speaks, for instance, of building his church upon the rock that is the confession of Peter. Paul speaks of converts to Christ, and this is in Ephesians 2, 19 and following. Paul speaks of converts to Christ as members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. 
He speaks of us like like bricks being fitted together, growing into a, a holy temple in the Lord, being built together for a holy dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Paul calls the church in 1 Timothy 3 the household of God. Listen as well to 1 Peter 2 verse 5. Peter, speaking to the church, addresses us this way. 1 Peter 2, uh, 1 verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And so Jesus, the greater son of David, the most supreme king to come from David's lineage, has built a house for the name of the Lord. And that's us. And God has established his throne and his kingdom forever. And God was a father to him to an even greater extent than to Solomon. He speaks of Jesus this way. He says, he is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And true to his promise to David, he even chastened Jesus with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Not because Jesus did anything wrong, not because Jesus sinned, but because Jesus came to bear our sins. Isaiah 53 tells us that he was punished as the sin bearer for our trespasses and iniquities. We hear in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. And so Jesus, David's son, was chastened with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men, or the wounds, or the blows of the sons of men not for his own sins, but for ours. And yet, as prophesied, God's mercy did not depart from him. He raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to his right hand. And so he has conquered sin and death and sits at God's right hand, holding all authority over heaven and earth. And congregation, that is why the kingship of Jesus is something to be celebrated, not only at this time of the year, but every day. David's greater son has built an everlasting house to God's name. And it is a house in which former pagans and peasants like you and me are welcome. Peter speaks of us in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 to 10, as a holy nation, God's own special people, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not before obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, this is only possible because God's king has come. And in, that, in the house that he is, has built and is building, the weary and the burdened find rest. Sinners find forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And the fear of every enemy is taken away. Jesus is the king to whom we owe all praise and all adoration. Revelation 19 verse 16 calls him the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let us then bask in his magnificence. Glorify him for his majesty and find shelter only under his care. Amen.